May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. When I was um, 17, I got this job at the uh, Big Bear grocery store, and I was the uh, I was a cashier. I, I could ring up groceries for people. Back in the old days, before they even had scanners, so you had to like type in the numbers and whatnot. It was pretty pretty fun job. wasn't so bad, especially when um, the other guys, you know, had jobs like uh, bringing in carts from the the parking lot, which was kind of enviable in the summertime. Not so enviable in the wintertime when they were out there pushing them through the snow and whatnot, and I was all safe and, and warm on the inside. You get to meet lots of people and, and things. It was, um, it was a fantastic job. Uh, I remember one day this guy came through my line and told me he was Jesus Christ. I said, well, I've been longing to meet you. And so um, it was kind of an interesting conversation. Uh, but it, it was a great job, and, and since I kind of grew up in a uh, in a very um, uh, you know impoverished neighborhood, I was you know our family didn't have much money. It was it was really good for me to have this job because I needed it. Um, but every now and then, you know, I'd be a little bit flush with cash, and uh, you know, I'd have twenty dollars or something, and um, a- and my buddies would say to me, you know, hey, let, let's let's go out or whatever, and I can't, I gotta work. Well, call in sick. Well, you know, you can do that a few times, but you can only do it a few times, you know, and so. You know, I normally wouldn't do that. I remember one time, though, my friend uh, who also worked with me said, let's call in. I'll call in first, and then you call in. Well, I, thought, I didn't think it was a very good idea because he got to, like, jump to the front of the line. They were going to take his excuse. They were going to take mine. And so he had already called in, and, uh, you know, now you call in, Joe. I said, what am I going to say, that I'm sick just like you are? Like, that would be a terrible idea. And so, um, to my great shame, I, um, I killed off my grandmother. Um, I should tell you, I should tell you, though, just as a, a, my father left my home before I was born, okay? And so I only grew up with just my maternal grandmother. I figured I had one funeral coming that I would never see, and so I used it at that time. Um, again, not my uh, greatest moment, but this is what happened. And so, uh, you know, I called in and, and took that time off, and it was a bad thing. And I, I felt really bad about it. And for years, I've been thinking about the lamest excuses, you know, like the people that call and, and, and give lame excuses. Recently, I saw a Forbes top ten list of lamest excuses people use to get out of work. Um, one of the top ten from this last year was that somebody called and said that their grandmother had poisoned them with a ham. Um, I don't know. Maybe he had a tough grandma, you know. I don't know. Uh, another one was, I, I'm, I'm trapped under the bed and I can't get out, you know. Uh, <laughs> Uh, uh, a man really called in and said his wife had thrown all of his underwear into the washing machine and he couldn't come to work. Apparently, commando was not an option for that day. Um, there was a, one where uh, somebody um, somebody called in and uh, and said, um, oh, what was it? Uh, that, that that Oh, I totally lost my mind. Anyway, ridiculous ones. You know, every one of them were, were more ridiculous than the one before. And it reminded me of something my mother used to say, which was uh, that a poor excuse is better than none. Um, I don't know if that really is true. Sometimes none is really a better option. There are good excuses, right, to miss work. I have a fever. Nobody wants you to come to work if you have a fever. Indeed, nobody wants you to come to church if you have a fever. Stay home. That's a good reason. Don't share your... I have the flu. No. Another good thing not to share with people. Keep it to yourself. Um... You have an actual death or illness. That's a good reason to miss work or to be, you know, out of something. Sometimes ignorance is indeed a good excuse. You don't tell a 12-year-old to drive to the store, right? I don't know how to drive. Okay, well, that's a fair reason why you should not drive. Um, Or maybe even 
I'm not ready. You know, I'm too young. I'm too inexperienced. I'm too whatever. That can be a valid excuse for not doing something. Jeremiah seems to want to employ that excuse. Did you hear the Old Testament lesson this morning? Um, It goes like this. At the beginning of it, the word of the Lord came to me, that is Jeremiah speaking, saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, "Ah, ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I'm only a youth. God is calling Jeremiah. I have a job for you to do. I mean, that's a good thing to say to somebody, isn't it? I mean, or a, a good revelation for someone to have, that they have a purpose in life. There is something that God, God Almighty, has called them to do. Um, a lot of people think about uh, a vocation like, um, like you know, being a, a clergyman or whatever, but that's not the only vocation. If God calls you to work as a school teacher or an attorney, um, uh, to um, work in, in mecha- as a mechanic, whatever, that, that is the purpose. And, and, and when somebody discovers, like, oh, my word, this is what I was made to do, there's great delight in that. And suddenly work doesn't become such a drudgery. It has purpose. And, and there's a realization that, that the Almighty has made you, know, you to do something particular. There is a a specific task. Vocation is something that's necessary in, in, I think, the lives of all people. A sense of knowing that there is something deep down that I was made to do and I do it and find great joy in it. Now, it may not be the same thing all your life. I mean, maybe God calls you at a point in time to... um, you know, to, to be, I don't know, a school teacher. Uh, and then at some point in your life, well, maybe it's a, a different thing, you know, you know, calls you to, to work in another field and, and so you do that. But a sense in which that your, your activities in the day are fulfilling the deepest desire of your heart, a sense of, of calling. But did you notice the job that God calls Jeremiah to do? <laughs> he calls him to be a prophet. To be a preacher, which sounds like not such a bad gig, um, until you realize what kind of preacher God calls Jeremiah to be. Let me read for you verses 9 and 10. If you have your bulletin, you might want to look at it there. Uh, The Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. It's this vision that God touches his mouth. Look, I've given you my words to speak. See, I have set you this day, look at this, over nations and over kingdoms. Jeremiah really is a teenager. When he says, I'm just a child, he's not making up an actual poor excuse. He's really a a young man. He's a teenager. And, And God has put his words in his mouth, I have set you over nations and over kingdoms. Now, I want you to imagine that some teenager in our Western world goes and he needs to speak to the president. He wants to speak to our president and say, you know, you've got things all wrong. You're not doing this right. Or or maybe he wants to speak to, you know, another foreign dignitary. Uh, You know, he wants to go talk to Putin. Or she needs to talk to, uh, you know, the prime minister of England. Who would take them seriously? In what world do, do the powerful politicians listen to teenagers? Well, I'll tell you that world, it doesn't exist, right? They do not listen to them. These are not people who have a voice. And yet God says to Jeremiah, I have put my words in your mouth, and you are going to speak truth to power. Listen to truth. 
To pluck up and break down. This is what God wants Jeremiah to do. To pluck up and break down, to destroy and overthrow. Well, that's got to go well, right? I mean, who's going to reject that? Who's gonna... And finally, to build and to plant. Three things, two of them are, are negative. I mean, it's sort of like saying, look, I want you to get into the, to the boxing ring with Evander Holyfield. But don't worry, we have good doctors around here. <laughs> we'll put you back together. This is, not, this is not an encouraging thought, is it? This is, you have a difficult job to do. Any idea what happens to prophets when they speak truth to power? Let me give you a couple of names. Perhaps you've heard of them. Martin Luther King Jr.? I mean, what happens when people speak truth to power? Abraham Lincoln? What happens to people who speak truth to power? Dietrich Bonhoeffer? What happens when people speak truth to power? I'll tell you what happens. They get rejected, and if possible, they get murdered. This is what we do when somebody tells us that we don't want to hear, right? Get rid of that person. Why would Jeremiah not want this job? I mean, it looks like it's got everything going for him, right? You get to speak the word of the Lord to people who don't want to hear it and who will eventually, if they can, kill you. Um, And so his excuse is valid, isn't it? Lord, I'm just a kid. I'm just a boy. I have no time for preparation. I'm not ready for this. I mean, I'm not really ready to do what you've called me to do. Perhaps he's even saying, this works. I'm just a boy. I'm only a child. Perhaps he's saying, give me a little more time. (laughs) Maybe not today. You know, I'm thinking maybe next year. You know, I'll do another year of study. Um, Maybe uh, give me, let me finish this degree program that I'm in. Maybe then I'll be ready. Just a little more time. But you know that's not really the answer, is it? Jeremiah doesn't want this job. It's a lame job. Of all the jobs to call me to, you give me this job? Let me read to you what happens to Jeremiah um, as he begins to do his work. Uh, his, his worst fears sort of come to, to happen. And, and in chapter 20, if I can get these pages to turn well, um, the, the priest, his name is uh, Pashur, he, the priest, the son of Emir, who was the chief officer in the house of the Lord. This is, Jeremiah is a Jew. The guy who's in charge of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, okay, is this fellow Pashur. He heard that Jeremiah the prophet was saying the sort of things that he was saying, verse 2, and then Pashur beat Jeremiah the prophet and put him in the stocks that were in the upper Benjamin gate in the house of the Lord. He beat him and he puts him in stocks. And he makes a public ridicule of him. Why would he not want this job? I mean, come on. The the benefits alone, right? Okay, so here's what Jeremiah starts singing. Here's his his song. It's a sad song. I have it set to country and western lyrics and uh, music in my mind. Um, Perhaps a little bluesy tune, I'm not sure. But um, something like this. He says, O Lord, you have deceived me and I was deceived. You are stronger than I and you have prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all day. Everyone mocks me. Whenever I speak, I cry out. I shout violence and destruction. For the word of the Lord has become to me a reproach and a derision all day long. If I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones. You get this. He's saying, 
Every time I open my mouth and say what you tell me to say, people hate me. They make fun of me. They beat me. And then I say, I'm not doing it. I'm not going to say another word. And it's like fire inside of me. It just has to come out. I cannot hold it in. It's like burning in my bones. Jeremiah is in a tough situation because he he has this job he doesn't want and the only paycheck he gets are regular beatings and laughing. This This is what he has to deal with. He knows it going in. But God makes him this promise. Back in chapter 1, verse 8. Do not be afraid of them. Why? Why would you not be? For I am with you to deliver you. Here's the promise. This is the payoff, right? Don't be afraid of them. I'm with you. And I will deliver you. I will save you. I will, I will be your rescuer. I'm with you. Well, you can obviously see where we're going with it. Right? And this is sort of, this is God's word to us, right? It, we, we don't often get called into the difficult task that Jeremiah has. We don't often get called to say, um, speak truth to power, for instance, or to say unpleasant things that people don't want to hear. But we do know this, that, that God knows us. Before you were formed in your mother's womb, God says to Jeremiah, I knew you. And he knows you. You and you and you and you and me. Before we were formed in our mother's womb, God knows us. And he has a plan for us. And a vocation. He calls us a vocation. The, the word um, comes from the same root where we get the word vocative. Uh, the, um, a, 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 a way of speech in both Latin and Greek. Vocative is a, a um, direct address. God speaks to us. I have a plan for you. I have a job for you. This is what I'm calling you to do. And you know what? Sometimes it's really great and it's really fun and it's uh, rainbows and puppy dogs. And sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's tough. It's a difficult job. I was in uh, Charleston this week. And um, at this conference, and this conference was about, you know, the kind of uh, cross between, uh, between Christianity and Islam in our culture and, and how, especially for Christians, how do we address the issue of engaging Muslims in, in theological discussion that's respectful and, and helpful, but, but also in a way of, of explaining and sharing the gospel. This man, uh, Nabil Qureshi, shared his testimony as growing up in a Muslim family and how he came to faith in Christ. And he said he came to this, this point where he was crushed because he knew at the point he believed in Jesus. He, he had critically examined Christianity in a very harsh and sort of almost um, negative way. And finally came to the point where he still believed it. And then he went and he looked at Islam and, and he, he realized that he could no longer walk that path. But to, to, to follow Jesus, to become a baptized Christian meant no more family. That his mother and father would disown him. That his sister wouldn't want to talk to him ever again. That he couldn't see his nieces and nephews. That he had to, he, he had to be extracted from that family. His own, you know, people he loved and who loved him. Sometimes the call of God is not easy. But there's always this promise. I will be with you. To deliver you. You know, the whole thing about, you know, if you if you ever um, had to go to a uh, a desert island, you know, like, what few things would you take with you? You know, like, what would you take? 
You know, you better take your Bible because you're in church. Um, what else would you take? You know, um, I don't know what you would take. I have a few things on my list. Wouldn't it be nice to know that if you had to go to a desert island, you could take one person? That one person could be with you? God is saying, if you're all alone, you're not all alone, that I will be with you. When, um, when I was a, uh, a doctoral student at Asbury, um, uh, our, our youngest son, Dietrich, uh, was only like a kindergartner. He's five years old. And he would go to school half day or something like that. And, and then he would want to walk over to the university with me, you know, and, and go to the, to the little office I had there or, you know, walk around or do stuff like that. And so I'd take him with me. And, and we walked this one certain path. And every time we did, there was this little retaining wall that kind of went around some mechanical equipment or something. And it was about, I don't know, five feet or so off the ground. And it would kind of go up to a, some staircases so you could get up on the wall. And then I'd just continue to walk down the stairs. And he'd continue to walk to the end of the wall. And then he'd stand on the edge of the wall, you know. And, and, and he'd be standing there. And I'd be right on the other side of it. And he'd say, now catch me. <laughs> okay. And so uh, I'd just stand there. Okay, jump. And he'd jump into my arms and then giggle. And can I do it again? Of course. You know, 30 or 40 times later, you know, is all the time. But... At one point, he started getting over there, you know, after a few days of doing this, and he would get to the edge of the wall, and he would put his arms straight out, and he'd say, you're going to catch me. Daddy, are you going to catch me? Yes, of course I'm going to catch you. And he'd close his eyes, and he would fall forward. And he'd fall into my arms, and I'd catch him, and he'd giggle. Can I do it again? Of course you can do it again. You know, and, and for a few times like that. You know, I realized something there. Probably the, the, the most important thing I learned... In a year of doctoral studies, I learned from a five-year-old, from a kid. And that is that you can always close your, arm, close your eyes, open your arms, and fall into the arms of your father. And that he will always be there. And he will always catch you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.